book of Hebrews, or should say, a book of exhortation. We see that there at the end of the book in chapter 13, as he the author closes it out, he says there, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, or bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Uh, there was much more he could have said, but it is a book of exhortation. What is exhortation? Exhortation really is it's encouragement, but it's encouragement with a bit of a push, an urging urgency. There's some urgency to this. Of course, the writer writing to the Hebrews, these believers, these Jewish believers who are under great pressure, societal pressure, pressure from uh, persecution to abandon, to abandon the faith, to, to go back to Judaism, to go back to living under the law, to the rituals of the Old Testament form of worship there at the temple. And there was a lot of pressure and there was you know, certainly some persecution that they would be able to, you know, obliterate or get rid of if they would just go back to what they knew. Of course, the writer of Hebrews is revealing to them and encouraging them to stay faithful, to be faithful to the faith that Christ has finished And he starts here in chapter 1, and I want us to look at chapters 1 and 2 today kind of as a a whole, because he starts in verse 1, and we've memorized this, the first word of the book is God. God. He assumes the existence of God. The writer of Hebrews does nothing to prove the existence of God. He starts there. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So he speaks, he, the, the writer here starts by talking about God who has spoken. God has spoken. He assumes he is the existence of God, and he is reminding us that God has revealed himself to us through his word. God has spoken. Listen, if God does not reveal himself to us, we're lost. We're hopeless because man does not seek after God, but God seeks after man. And God has revealed himself to us. So if we see this first verse, God, and in the second verse, has spoken. God has spoken. He spake in time past, and he has spoken here in the present, as the writer here is writing. So God has spoken. Who did he speak to? Well, he spoke to the fathers. Who are the fathers? Again, the writer here is referring to the Old Testament history, the Jewish history. God spoke to the fathers. You got Abraham, Moses. And God has spoken to the fathers in the past, and he has spoken in divers' manners or in various ways. God spoke in dreams. Sometimes there were angels that came as messengers to the Old Testament fathers. You can think of many times in the Old Testament where an angel would appear to Manoah, um, to Gideon, 
Uh, there, Joshua, uh, before he went into Jericho. So many times, God communicated in different ways. There were visions. Um, the prophets, God spoke to fathers through the prophets. The prophets there, as you read through them, and you read about the kings that they were speaking to, what were they doing? The prophets were just communicating the word of God. Now, this chapter starts by talking about God who spoke in time past and who now in these last days has spoken unto us by his son. So the significance of the beginning of this book really is God's speech. God spoke in time past to the fathers in various ways. But he has now spoken unto us. Now, when he says us, he's referring to the people who he's living with right there. He has spoken unto us by his son. Who is the son? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's going to talk about his incarnation here. But Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And according to John chapter 1, John chapter 1 is just, a, you could write it in the, the margin of your Bible. Go read John 1. Because what does John 1 do? John chapter 1 identifies the Word of God as the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Then you can jump back to Genesis, and you look at the creation, and how did God create the worlds? He spoke them into existence. It was the Word. Who is the Word? The Word is the second person of the Trinity. The Father, the Word, the Spirit. And at the Incarnation, what did the God do with His Word? His Word became flesh. God spoke in time past through various means and manners, visions, angels, messengers, prophets. But in these last days, and again, what are the last days? The last days are the days since Christ came even until he returns. We are living in the last days. And the scripture divides the um, time into those divisions. But he has in these last days spoken unto us. And how has he spoken to us? Through his son. When Jesus came to this earth, what did he say? He said nothing of himself but he said that which the Father gave him to say. He said, the words that I speak, they are from my Father. Everything that Jesus said was directly from his Father. So God was speaking to us through his Son. So God who spoke in time past hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now I'm going to stop there and I'm going to make a big leap. Because if God is speaking, what should we be doing? <laughs> you had better be listening. And this is going to this theme right here is going to run right through the whole book of Hebrews. 
Because look at the beginning of chapter 2. God has spoken in the past. He has spoken now to us by His Son. Therefore, look at verse two, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. There's this warning given. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Lest at any time we should let them slip or fall away or lose our grasp on them or forget them. The words of God are precious. He has spoken unto us through his son. Don't lose them. Don't lose the words which he has spoken. Hang on to them. They are precious. Do not let them slip. There's a great warning given. Because if you do, what will happen? Well, look at this warning. It says, lest at any time we should let them slip. What? The words of God. The words of his son. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect? And look at the next words. These next words tell us what the content of God's message was. If we neglect so great salvation... Let that sink in. God spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets in various ways. But now in these last days, God has spoken unto us by His Son. And the message from the Son is the message of salvation. And if you do not pay attention... You will not escape. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And look at the description of that in verse 3. Which at the first began to be spoken by whom? By the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Son. Who is the Son? It's the Word made flesh. It's God's speech to us. Here it is. In these last days, he has spoken unto us by his Son. And what is the message? The message is that of salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now watch. Here's God speaking. Speaks by the Son. There were those who heard him directly. And now the writer is saying, and we have heard... Those who heard the Son directly. Now we're hearing it secondhand. It was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. So how did we know that they were giving us the truth? Well, God verified it, their message. How did He do that? Look at verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers are various miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. Now, there it is. Here's this core message. God has spoken in the past. He has now spoken in the present by His Son. He has spoken to us in these last days by His Son. Be warned. Do not let His words slip. Hang on to them. Because what are his words? It is the message of salvation. 
which if you do not pay attention to, you will not escape. And his words have been told us by those who heard him directly. And they've been confirmed to us by miraculous signs and wonders. Where's that? That's the book of Acts. The apostles went forth and they were spreading the word of God. They were spreading the gospel. And as they went, God gave them power to heal the sick, to raise the dead. I mean, here's Paul bitten by a viper on this remote island. And all the islanders looked and said, oh, he's going to die. He must have been an evil man. Fate will not suffer him to live. And they watched. He shook the viper off into the fire. And he didn't die. And it was miraculous. And what did it do? The people were, wow, there's something special about this man. Shall we worship him? And Paul says, no, but let me share with you Jesus Christ. So throughout the book of Acts, we see the word of God being preached by those who heard the son directly. And it was confirmed with miraculous signs and wonders. Now, we skipped an awful lot looking at those basic points. So let's go back and see why the rest was written. Remember, the writer is writing to the Hebrews, these Jewish believers. Why should they listen to Jesus? They, I mean, who was Jesus? He looked like an ordinary man. Certainly he did. So why should we be listening to Jesus? Who is he? Who is this son through whom God has spoken to us in these last days? Well, let's go back and look at that. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3. Actually, in verse 2. Who is the son? Well, the son, he has spoken in these last days unto us by his son, whom he, the father, has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So we're identifying the significance of the Son and who he is. We see here his position. He is the heir of all things, and he is the creator of all things. Again, John's message in John chapter 1, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator we also see here his person. Look at verse 3. Who is the Son? Well, who being the brightness of his glory, or the brightness of the glory of the Father, and the express image of his person. Who is he? It's the brightness of his Father's glory. He's the express image of his person. He is the revelation of God. If, what did Jesus say to Philip? If you have seen me, you have seen whom? You have seen the Father. It's the same. What did Jesus say? I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. So the Son is the speech of God. He is the heir of everything. He is the creator of everything. He is the brightness of his Father's glory and the exact or express image of his person, the person of the Father. There is no inconsistency. There is no difference. 
Okay? And then, of course, we see his power. Why should we listen to the Son? We see who he is. We see what he is, and we see what he has done. It says here that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is this word? Who is this son through whom God is speaking? He is the promised Messiah. He is the one, the one who has purged our sins. And when he had by himself, and of course, that whole action of purging our sins by himself is going to become a great theme through this book as we talk about the priesthood of Christ and how not only is he the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. But by himself, once for all, he has purged our sin. And then where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In this book, we will observe the son in his three roles as prophet, priest, and king. We're going to see all of that. This is whom God has spoken through. This is he whom we are to listen to. And now he goes on in this chapter and starts talking about his preeminence, his superiority. God has spoken, He's spoken by his son. Be warned, do not let his words slip, because if you do, you will not escape. But what makes him so important? What is the significance of what he's saying? Who is he? He is the preeminent one. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. Being made so much better than the angels. Who are the angels? Well, that is the highest order of God's creation, the angels. There they are ministering in his presence. They're different than men. Okay? But they are created beings. But here the Son is made so much better than the angels. He is superior to angels. In the Old Testament, when God would speak in various ways, he'd speak by the prophets, you know, speak in visions and dreams, but occasionally there was an angel. And when the people saw an angel, it was terrifying. And they knew that they were hearing from God. And it was just like the apex of communication from God was if you had seen an angel. And sometimes the people thought they were in the very presence of God. They would bow to worship the angel. And of course, you see that the angel would say, don't worship me, worship God. But here, he's made better than the angels. He is superior even to angels. How is he superior to angels? Well, note what he says. He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He has a better name than the angels. What is his name? Well, he is the Son. He is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 5 says, For unto which of the angels said he, when he's speaking of he, speaking of the Father, God, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, 
This day have I begotten thee. Did God ever say that to an angel? No, he never did. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That was never spoken to an angel. There is not that kind of a relationship between the angels and God. But the son, the one, the word that God has spoken to us through his son, the son has a special relationship. He has a better name than the angels. And then he says in verse 6, And again, or in addition to that, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he says, at the incarnation, when the word was made flesh, when God came to dwell on earth among men, what did the Father say? Let all the angels of God worship him. He is superior. He commands the worship of angels. He is worshiped by angels. Then he goes on in verse 7. And of the angels, he said, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. What distinction is he making right there about the Son? The Son reigns as king. Angels are servants. Angels are God's ministers. They are servants. The Son is much higher than the angels. He's far greater. The Son is a king. He goes on. And verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. He is the creator. Angels are servants. He is a king. He's the creator. Verse 13, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? God never said that to an angel. He says it to the Son. And then he concludes this first chapter by saying, speaking of the angels, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits? And note whom they are to serve. This verse says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? <laughs> That's me. That's you. Angels are God's servants, and they minister to those who what? Who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, I'm not going to go into this in great depth, but that, what that says to me is that angels are actually used by God to orchestrate events even in our lives as yet unbelievers. Before we're even saved, God uses his angels even to direct us as we are the heirs of salvation. Who sh That's why he says here, who shall be the heirs of salvation. Now, chapter one, God has spoken in the past. He has spoken now in the present by his son. Here is who the son is. And now the Son is far superior to angels. Chapter 2. Now, chapter 2, we already went over this. That warning. 
Chapter 1 is actually, it ends in verse 14, and there's this parenthesis of a warning that is given. Pay attention. Pay attention to the Word of God, because the message of the Son is the message of salvation. And if you let that slip, if you do not grasp that, you will not be saved. You will not escape. But in verse 5, he picks up, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he picks up where he left off at the end of chapter 1. He is still talking about the preeminence of the Son and angels. But note the direction he's going to go. Here's his preeminence, superior to to angels. In verse 5, let's read verse 14 again from chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now verse 5, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. The angels are ministers, God's servants, ministering to those who shall be the heirs of salvation and they are not even going to rule the world. In fact, the saints are going to rule the world. He says here, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Who is he speaking about? He's speaking about men, humans. We are made lower than the angels. Angels are a higher order of creation. Angels are not mortal. Men are mortal. Man has been made a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Man is set over creation. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So there, it's, it's not complete yet. The creation is not completely under the dominion of man. That is coming. Man will rule over God's creation. Now, he says this because he wants us to realize that angels are higher order than man. But look at what happens next. Verse 9. We see here, again, he's talking about the Son being superior to angels. God has placed his creation under the dominion of man, not angels. It's not been fully realized yet. By the way, that is Psalm 8. He's quoting from Psalm 8 in those verses. But what do we see? He says in verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made, and look at that phrase again, a little lower than the angels. What does it mean to be made lower than the angels? It means to be made human. Jesus, who is the Son, God's speech to man, was made Human. He was made a little lower than the angels. Oh, well then, he can't be superior to angels if he's made lower than the angels because angels are a higher being, right? No, wrong. Note what he says here. We see Jesus made human. But let me tell you right here, 
Though he was made a little lower than the angels, he is still superior to angels even in his humanity. Realize this. He is still superior to angels even though he was made flesh. Verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For what purpose? For the suffering of death. Angels do not die. Man is mortal because of sin. So Jesus became man. He was made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of the suffering of death. He is crowned with glory and honor. It says that he, and this is why he was made low for the suffering of death, that he, for the, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And so the purpose of the Son being made lower than the angels or becoming man was to die. That's why he was made mortal, that he might die and taste death for every man. Verse 10, for it became him. Remember, he was superior to angels, even in his humanity, but he came to man to suffer death. For it became him. And look at his description again. For whom are all things. That harks right back to what he said in verse 2 of chapter 1. He's been appointed heir of all things. We're talking about the same person. Now we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is identified as whom? The Son. See the connection. He is the one for whom all things are all things and by whom are all things. That harks right back to he is the creator. He is the heir of all things and he is the creator of all things. This is Jesus, the human, the man, Christ Jesus. For became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Here's God's design. The son becomes human. He becomes flesh. He is made for a time lower than the angels. And God's design in that is to complete him through suffering. Suffering even unto death. He's going to taste death for every man. And in verse 11, he says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Who is he that sanctifieth? That's Christ. Who are they that are sanctified? That's us. We who have been justified through faith. We who have believed on him. We who are saved. We and him, our Savior, are all of one, are all of the Father. We belong to the Father. For which cause he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Wow, that's quite a progression here. Here, Jesus, who's made a little lower than the angels, the Son of God, the Word of God, God's speech to us, calls us his brothers and sisters. Because we are all of one. We are of one family. We are of the Father. 
And what does he say? He says here, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Again, quoting from the Psalms. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. We as believers are given to the Son by God. Now, he goes on and he's going to talk a little bit more about this being made flesh, about the Son of God being made flesh and the necessity of that and how he is making him complete through suffering. How is the Son being made complete or perfected through suffering? Well, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Who are the children? Us, believers. We are partakers of flesh and blood. We are. We are mortal. We are humans. He also himself likewise took part of the same. He became mortal. He became human. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Who's that? That's us. So in his becoming mortal, he has become mortal that he might die. He's going to be perfected through suffering. And how does he accomplish this? By partaking of flesh and blood. Again, by becoming mortal like we are. And by becoming mortal, what does he do? Through dying, he destroys Satan. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? He ends chapter 1 Corinthians 15, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, through death, Jesus Christ is victorious over Satan. And who does he deliver? He delivers us. Who? What is the greatest fear that man has? It's death. You might be afraid of the boogeyman. You might be afraid of, you know... High gas prices, you might be afraid of losing your job, you might be afraid of sickness, but what does man, what, what does man ultimately fear? He fears death because he doesn't know what's beyond death. And those who are lost have no hope beyond the grave. But here, we're delivered from that because of the death of Christ. He died to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So when the Son came to the world, how did he come? He came as a man. He came as a human. He did not come as an angel. He was made a little lower than the angels. But even being made lower than the angels, he is still superior to them 
even in his humanity. And that's the point he is making here in chapter 2. The Son is still superior to angels, even is in his humanity, because of what God's plan is and what he accomplishes. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, like us humans. He was not made. He did not take on him in the nature of angels. Jesus did not come as an angel, as a higher being than man. No, he came as a man. He dwelt among us. The Bible says he tabernacled among us. He experienced everything that we experience. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And why? Well, this verse reveals God's purpose. God's purpose and how he was to make the captain of our salvation complete through suffering. He was in all things made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful what? High priest. It has everything to do with Jesus' role as our high priest. And he is going to spend the next many chapters up through 1019 talking about the role of Jesus Christ as our high priest. It's incredibly significant in this book because he spends so much time talking about it. But this is why God says here that he made the captain of their salvation complete through suffering. It says that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to aid, or that word succor, them that are tempted. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, became flesh for the purpose of suffering, suffering death. He was made a little lower than the angels. He was to be completed or perfected by suffering. And in his suffering, he tasted death for every man. And in tasting death, he destroyed him that had the power of death and delivered us from the fear of death. Because he conquered death. And he came as a man. It behooved him. It was fitting. It was God's plan that he come as a man and be made like us. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. He was made like us. He humbled himself and came that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Can an angel understand what we go through? No. He hasn't experienced it. Oh, have you, have you ever tried to comfort someone who's just gone through an incredible tragedy or has gone through some just, um, just seeming over, overwhelming um, difficulty? And, 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 and you want to say something to encourage them, but you're like, that's never happened to me. I have no idea what they're going through, but... I mean, remember Job's friends? They came and 
They wanted to encourage Job. And they came and sat with him. And nobody knew what to say. Job had lost everything he had. And on top of that, he lost all his children. And, and what could they say? They sat there for seven days, speechless. They didn't say a word for an entire week. They didn't know what to say. In the rest of the book, they started talking and still didn't know what to say. How can you be, how can you sympathize with somebody that's going through something you've, you've never gone through? But Jesus, he has been through it all. And therefore, he is a merciful high priest, a faithful high priest. He sympathizes with us, the Bible says. He understands our weaknesses. That just makes me just say, oh, like a sigh of relief. He knows. He understands. He's been there. And so here's the purpose that he himself in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to aid, to comfort, to encourage them that are tempted. Now, I could jump ahead and go into chapter 3, and I really don't want to, because it goes right into chapter 4. So we'll do that next week. But I want to note just a couple more things. Back in chapter 1, we talked about God speaking and how important his speech is. So important, therefore, that chapter 2 starts with this great warning about giving earnest heed to what God has said through the Son. I want you to look, and we, were, we were here not that long ago, so it should be very fresh in your memory. Go back to Hebrews, or turn ahead, sorry, turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 12. This book finishes with this great warning. It's the last warning given is in chap the end of chapter 12, starting at verse 25. And he says here again, this is coming up, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Do not refuse him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth. And again, there he's referring to God speaking there at Mount Sinai in that just incredibly intense and overwhelmingly frightening scene that the children of Israel experienced. In fact, they wanted to crawl under rocks and hide. They were so afraid. In fact, they told Moses, you speak to God. <laughs> and, then, and then talked to us because we will perish if God continues speaking. They heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. He spoke to them audibly and they said, stop, we're, we're done. We will die. If they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And so there's this incredible warning given. Do not refuse him that speaketh. God's words are important. That cannot be overstated. 
His words are precious. They are essential. And if they are refused, you will not escape. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22. I'm sorry, chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus gives a parable here. And the parable is, it fits really well with what we're looking at here in Hebrews 1 and 2. Beginning at verse 33 of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says this. He says, hear another parable. Listen. Now, who is speaking? It's the Son. What is he saying? Well, he's giving us God's word. He did not speak of his own. He only spake what God gave him. So these are the words of God speaking in the last days to us. Right here. Here it is. Don't let these words slip. Listen carefully to what he says. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder or a landowner which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husband Mender and went into a far country. So he turned it over to people who are to care, be caretakers and take care of his vineyard. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. So, verse 36 again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. They did the same thing. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come! Let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now let's stop right there. Jesus is speaking, speaking to the multitudes. Religious leaders were gathered in, listening as Jesus spoke, and he tells this story. And what is a parable? A parable is this, a, a simple story taken from common, ordinary experiences designed to teach a main point. And these stories are simple, but they're very effective. So here are these people hearing this story. And everyone loves a good story. Don't you love to hear a story? I love to hear a story. In fact, when a preacher's preaching and all of a sudden he starts telling a story, I had this, it, this was magical when I was a child. I could be sitting there struggling to stay awake. 
And somehow, all of a sudden, if the preacher went into an illustration or a story, ding, I was magically awake. It's like, oh, here it is. And here comes a story. So here's Jesus. He tells this story. It's dramatic. It's incredible. Unjust. It's terrible. I mean, you read this about this wealthy man. He provides, gets this vineyard. He spends a lot of time and effort in preparing it. And then he's going to leave it to a foreign country. And he leaves it in, in the care of these qualified men to run the vineyard. And then comes the fall or time of the, um, when the grapes are ripe. Sends some of his servants back. He says, I want you to bring me back. Tell me how things are going. Bring me back a sample of what's, you know, producing. I want to see how the vineyard is doing. Well, the, vineyard, the servants never returned because the husband beat them and killed them. So he sent more. More. And they went and the same thing happened. Well, he says, well, I'll send my son. And he sends his son. He says, well, they'll reverence him because he's my son. And what happens? They do the same thing to the son. They throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. And then Jesus asks his audience, he says, uh, well, when the Lord actually comes back to the vineyard, what do you think he's going to do to those husbandmen? And the audience, oh, just like us, we're like, man, I know what exactly what he's going to do. Man, he's going to destroy them. Oh, that's what I do. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those. I mean, not just, you know, get rid of them, fire them. No, he is going to grind them to bits. I mean, he's going to miserably destroy them. And he will let his, out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Now, why do I bring up this parable? Because it fits so well with what Hebrews tells us. In chapter 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, sent his servants, the prophets, and what did the children of Israel do to the prophets? They killed them, stoned them, imprisoned them. Did they heed the words of God? No. And he sent more and more prophets. Did they listen? No, they didn't. And did they escape? No, they didn't. Last of all, he sent whom? His son. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He came unto his own, and what did they do? His own received him not, but they cast him out of the city and crucified him on a cross. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in this parable. The husband, the, the landowner is the father. He sends his son. He sent the prophets. Then he sends his son. And did they listen? No. And so did they escape? No, they did not. And when the people responded, when he asked them, what will this, what will this landowner do when he comes to his vineyard? They will be, he's going to miserably destroy those wicked men and 
let out his vineyard to others who will actually do what he said. And Jesus said, oh, no, no, that's wrong. No, that was the right answer. And what was he saying? Yes, you're going to be miserably destroyed. And the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. We see that fulfilled. And they will receive it. And we have. But the point I want you to see in this parable, not just all of that, which is there true, and that's what the parable is teaching. But what happened to those who did not hold fast the word of God? What happened to the fathers to whom God spake in time past in sundry manners? Well, what happened to the northern tribes? They went into captivity. To Assyria. What happened to Judah 147 years later? To Babylon. And they were destroyed. And God emptied the land. Okay? They did not listen to the prophets. They would not heed the warnings. And God in his mercy and grace sent more and more. And yet they responded the same way, rejecting the word of God. And if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every word and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Folks, you won't. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we refuse him that speaketh from heaven. The last verse of chapter 12, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, this is where we're going to stop, and we'll continue next week. Again, we're looking at a kind of a summary as we go through Hebrews. But what a, what a fantastic beginning to this book. God is speaking. He spoke in time past. He has spoken by His Son. And He's going to warn us in chapter 3, Don't be like those Hebrews that hardened their hearts. Hear His speech. Hang on to His words. Don't let them slip. Don't refuse them. Because if you do, you will not escape. Do not underestimate the importance of God's word. It is precious. It is your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you in your grace and in your mercy have spoken to us. Lord, we thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your plan as it's spelled out here in these chapters of how Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the purpose of suffering death for us. And Lord, in doing that, he is a merciful and faithful high priest for us. Lord, bless as we go back through and we quickly go through this book of Hebrews, hitting the highlights and or just making sure we understand the content and the message. And Lord, we pray that these words would not slip. Lord, but that we would hold on to them. 
for they are precious. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.